Hey, Howard Hings, this is Mark here, and welcome back to the Clockwork Junkie podcast. Thank you for tuning in, as always, and if you're new, hello. This is episode 164, which is absolutely fantastic. My guest on the show today is Maeve Kelly. Maeve, how are you? How are you, Mark? Thanks I'm for having me. not too bad me. at all. Thanks, thanks for joining me. You're very um, welcome. So look, a small bit of busy work before we start. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the channel. Um, it's fantastic stuff. As I said, I think in the last one, there's over 2,200 subscribers and it's gone up all the time. That's brilliant. If you haven't subscribed, please think about doing it now. It's absolutely free. Um, leave a comment on the video, leave a like, share it if you think a friend will enjoy it. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do so through PayPal. It's paypal.me forward slash clockwork junkie. The link is in the description. Thank you to anyone who's done that. And thank you to anyone who's going to do it today. So, Maeve, you've been through the ringer over the last couple of years. It's probably the nicest way of saying it. Um, it's like that, all, all stories right. or all journeys start at the beginning. And I think your one is an important one. So can you just, I suppose, explain what you were doing the day of the crash and how it happened? And then I suppose when you're finished doing that, we might talk about injuries. But let's just get a sense of what happened on the day. If that's OK. Well, it was a Sunday. Um, I was actually laid up in bed because I had the winter bonnet and bug. And my daughter was going into Roscommon Town to the cinema with her boyfriend at the time. And she'd asked me for a lift home. Uh, the cinema was over at 20 past 11 that night. And I left the house with my other daughter, Abby, who was 15 at the time, to head into Roscommon to pick her up. It was a, it was a nice night. Um, it was no different than any other Sunday that you'd have kids that you'd be on the road or doing anything. And we headed off in and uh, we were stopped at the railway line um, between Necrocry and Roscommon Town. There's a little junction. We'd stop there and we were listening to music headed in. And then there's a part on the way into Roscommon Town where the trees overhang on the road just before Hannon's Hotel. And I would always, always, always drive slow in by there anyway uh, because of the trees and if you remember the bad storms we had where all the trees were falling so I had a hang up about that part of the road and I used to obviously and I hope the council cut them you know but anyway we're just coming up on that strip and the next thing there was a line of traffic and a car overtook the line of traffic coming towards us and drove straight for us um, I tried to avoid it but unfortunately he swerved towards me and just before impact, the lights went out. Now, I did put my hand on my daughter's knee and I said, we have nowhere to go because we had nowhere to go. And I knew that. So it was, we knew there was going to be an impact and there was nothing we could do to prevent it. When the lights went, the lights went out on the other driver's car. Yeah. So the person turned the lights out on the car themselves. Well, I can make all the presumptions I want. That's, you know... The lights went out basically and went straight, drove straight into us. So I'm going okay. to say, what can I say? I wasn't in the car with them. So, but that's well, what, what happened. What happened to the other person in the car is not of interest. He died. He died. On impact. Yeah. So, um, you, so you were in the car with your 15 year old, 15 year old daughter at the time, obviously. Um, yes. And you couldn't move, you couldn't get out of the way. Of course you couldn't. There's a line of traffic coming, the car overtakes and comes straight for you. It's like it's kamikaze style, it sounds like, although I know you won't say that, but that's what it sounds like. Um, so when when that happened, were you unconscious? Were you still awake in the car? No, I have no recollection at all for weeks. Um, my first recollection was I woke up I wasn't sure where I was, but I remember there was sides up on the bed, right? I've been honest with you. When I woke, I thought, am I locked up? Did somebody lock me in here? Because to me, I was looking through the sides of the bed. And to my right, there was nurses. There was a television up on the wall to my left. And I was after hearing, it was actually the paramedic who brought me from the scene of the crash to the hospital. Um, I found out later it was him that was after been at the side of the bed and he'd introduced himself while I was in critical care and he had said he wanted to do a follow-up and as he was walking away I was trying to tell him to come back but I couldn't and um, 
I identified with him for some reason. It was almost like he was gone. I needed him to come back because I didn't know where I was and why I was there and who they were in the corner. And the next recollection I have was lying there. My eyes were closed. I wasn't, I couldn't see anybody, but I heard a priest introducing himself and I could hear a lot of talking, which I now know was my family. And that's when he was praying over me. They were the only things that I can recall from the actual hospital. But that was um that was weeks later, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. I was in an induced coma, coma. um because I suffered a bleed on the brain as well. So I suppose we can talk about your injuries just before that. So what was there any how what happened to your daughter Abby at the time? Did was she in hospital as well? Did she before we get we, on to you? We were in hospital, yeah. We were brought um, both of us were brought to Tullamore Hospital that night. Um, I was in critical care because the extent of my injuries, my side of the car took a major wallop, as you can imagine. Mm. Abby had contusion of both her lungs. She had shattered her arm. She had damaged her knee. Um, like that, she had severe injuries, but mine were pretty catastrophic. So, like... Obviously, as much as you want to tell us, of course, but like, what, what were the injuries? Um... My right leg was shattered. Okay. Um, I have a metal pin from the hip to the ankle. My left leg was fractured at the knee joint. Um, I had a displaced fracture and the vertebrae in the middle of my back, the T7. I broke my neck, the C7 in my neck, um, broke several ribs on the left side, and I had traumatic brain injury as well. Yeah, that's a lot. That was that was 2016. Yeah. So six yeah. years ago. Right. And so <clears throat> I, I've so many questions. I don't know which one to ask you first. Um, so how long would you have been in hospital for before you got out? Um, but honest with you, I don't know exactly. Right. It's something I've never I was weeks in hospital. Um, in the end. I remember when they took me from critical care, I remember being in critical care in one room and been told you're in critical care, but it was coronary care. I don't know why they had me in coronary care. And then I remember being in a ward and I remember um, Dr. Murphy coming to visit me and he took a picture of me and I was on braces and I had a collar on. My next recollection was being at home. Um, the gaps in between were not fully and still don't remember car journeys or anything like that. I do recall that when they told me that Abby was leaving hospital, that I said I would sign myself out if they didn't let me out. I remember that, all right. Okay. A lot of it is a blank. So much of it is a blank. Well, like it's traumatic to say the least, and then obviously you're banged up and injured to say the least, but also the brain injury is like, I always... You know, if, if if I was a member of your family and I was there when it happened, the, it would be the brain thing that I'd be worried about the most because, you know, like the $6 million man, everything else can be repaired, but the, the brain is the hard one. But you're saying that even now, six years later, that you would still not remember everything as such, like no, a I car don't. journey or stuff like that. No. And no. How, how do you combat that? Like, like, like what's the... Well, it's kind of a blessing in one way, as I don't want to remember that part of it. Um, the bits I do are quite hard to take in. Like, I suppose the extent of my injuries, I had so many breaks that my main focus was to try and heal my breaks. The brain injury, never, none of that entered my head whatsoever. It was like... I had so much wrong with me that I couldn't focus on one particular thing. And I remember my father saying that he had asked the surgeon, you know, what are the effects of this brain injury? And he just said, Tommy, how long is a piece of string? He couldn't answer that. And obviously now I know why he couldn't answer it. Um, because no two brain injuries are the same. Even if you have the same brain injury, same bang on the same part of the brain, two people will not have the same effects from it. You know, every brain injury is unique to the individual. And I suppose when I got home from hospital, 
I had, I think around 300 stitches. I was pretty banged up, as you can imagine. I was braced. Um, my arms were out like that, raised on pillows. My one leg was up high, the other was low. I, I had a neck collar. I, I was just, I suppose I was so focused on all the breaks that I wanted them to heal and I wanted to get up and I wanted to go back to my life that I had. Um, but I didn't realize that I was a completely different person. And it's only, it was about seven or eight months later the crash was in March. I'm going to say it was probably November or December before I figured out there's something wrong. You know, um, and I kept saying, what's wrong with me? Because I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. But it was the brain injury had changed everything. You know, yeah, I remember. Like the, you know, like it's, um, like obviously you were extremely unlucky for that to happen in the first place. But the fact that it did happen it sounds like you were extremely lucky to still be alive at all, if it's okay yeah. to say that, from the injuries that you got and like when a car's coming and it's hitting you head on and there's nothing you can do about it, you can't really get out of the way. You're kind of in the, it's something to look after that, you know. Um, so just yeah. before we go, so with the, with the physical injuries, um, yeah. how are you now, like structurally, if you like, with your body, like can you, can you walk now, can you, do the things yeah. that you feel good on that side of it before we go into the brain side. No, I can't do the things. I, I'm very careful of the words I speak because I don't like speaking negative over myself. However, um, I'm conscious that this is life and these are my injuries, but I'm very conscious of what I say. I'm, I try to be as positive as I can and I don't like speaking negative over myself and say, well, you can't do this. Um. What has changed for me, I suppose I have a metal plate from the hip to the ankle. I've had to rebuild muscle. Um, my muscles on my arms were quite detached from the crash. They were, one of the muscles was hanging here. Um, so they all had to rebuild themselves. And then where the break was in my neck, the muscles had weakened. I mean, I broke both my legs, my back and my neck. All the muscles gathering around there have to rebuild themselves. And it doesn't happen overnight it takes time i'm still working every day at building muscle i see my chiropractor three times a week i go for massage twice a week you know it's something that i have to continue to do until my body is strong enough you know and then with the brain injury i remember getting up one day and i went into the bathroom and i was hopped in and i remember looking in the mirror and I, my words were who the fuck are you? Well, I, first of all, well done with the working on the body thing. And, you know, like much stronger people would have broke quicker over less. So I definitely commend you on that. Um, it's, I've said in probably one of, this is podcast 164. I've over, I think 250 videos out of different things. And uh, as a lot of people would know that listen to the podcast, I had depression for 10 years, but the turning point of it all, I've literally said the words in my podcast that you've just said, I looked in the mirror one day and I said, this is, I could see in my eyes that it was me. I could yes. see that it was definitely me, but I, I didn't recognize this exoskeleton that was, uh, this body that was hanging. I, I looked sad. I looked lost, but I could still see me in my eyes in the mirror. And it's, I don't know how you would describe it. I can't um, eloquently find the words to describe it, but it was one of the biggest hits I've ever taken in my life when I realized that I didn't recognize myself and that something had to be done. Um, just to add to that, you said, so I seen the clip that you've done of the video that you made. Um, I'll leave the link in the description, by the way. I'm also going to leave the link to um, Maeve's social media and you can go and check out, um, you can check her out there. She's releasing a book in sometime in the next couple of months, but if you go and follow her on social media, you can find out all of the bits and bobs and the release dates and all that. Um, but uh, what was I just saying there before I start? Where I looked in the mirror. You go. Yeah, just after that. Um, 
Oh yeah. So in the in the video that I seen, you mentioned something that kind of struck with me, and it was that um, you felt that you lost Maeve, that you were looking everywhere for her, you know. Yeah, I did. And, I lost my complete identity. Yeah. But this is what people don't realize when you go through any kind of traumatic experience is that people worry about, and as you actually said yourself, the physical side of it, can I get my leg to work okay? How's my muscles on my arm? But like, and all those are important and they're critical to survive and they're critical to live in any kind of life that it's the emotional or psychological or psychological side of it that's even probably a sometimes more important. Um, so can you explain that where you felt that like you've lost the Maeve that you were prior to the accident? What, what was that like? Or how would you describe it, I suppose, is probably the better question. Well, when I figured out that I wasn't the same, I remember lying in the bed and the start of it was I would hear my daughters, both my daughters suffered so bad with night terrors, you know, because my daughter that I was going to pick up from the cinema had got a lift and to where the crash happened. And when she went through the guards and the whole lot, I was been cut free from the car. Her sister was nowhere to be seen and the other man was just been taken from the scene. And so afterwards, my main focus was, how am I going to keep them right mentally? While not realizing that I wasn't right myself, but my focus became them. And I went back to recuperate in my mother's house for a couple of months. And I remember one Wednesday saying, I'm out of here. I'm going home. Either you bring me home or I'm getting a taxi, I said to my dad. And I got my kids to put everything that I had in a black bag. And I went home, braced up. And I said, I have to do this for my kids' sake or I'm going to get sick. That was my first thing. I'm going to get sick if I don't go home. Not realising that I was in absolute bits. I was already sick, right? But a different type of sick, right? So, and I went home and I remember lying in bed at night and I would hear my kids screaming in their sleep with night terrors and not been able to go to them because I couldn't get out of the bed. Um, I remember I would try to move a certain way and next thing, the only way I can ever describe it is, it was like every bit of fluid on the left side of my body would go to the right if I turned to the right and vice versa. Um, and I wasn't up and as mobile as I wanted to be, but I would bum up and down the stairs as straight as I could. I couldn't understand why my pain pathways were very different, like where I should have had excruciating pain, I didn't. But if I had a spot on my face, the pain was horrendous. And to this day, it's like that. But I remember I'd be shouting, wake up, wake up, you're dreaming, wake up. And I couldn't get out to them. You know, I wasn't able to get to the, that was the most torturous thing even now I get choked up thinking about it and um, not been able to get to them because physically I wasn't able my kids became my carers you know that Casey was after doing her junior cert and she had done extremely well Abby was out of school obviously with her injuries and everything so they started doing the washing and the cooking and the thing they were just out on their own they were just hats off to them they were brilliant um, and it wasn't until I began to get a little bit more mobile um, that I figured, okay, when I eat, I faint or I go to collapse. What if it happens and the kids are here on their own? And then there was an awful thick side of me that was saying, well, I don't want anyone to know. I want to fix myself. If I start becoming very dependent on people, when I end up being dependent on other people for the rest of my life, I didn't want that. I had came off all my medication seven weeks after the crash. I met, my doctor became my counsellor, my psychotherapist. He was out on his own, Dr. Connor Lynham here in Athlone, and all the staff in Newtown Medical Centre, hats off to them. And to this day, they're out on their own. They're brilliant. And I would ring Connor Lynham and I would say, look, Connor, I have a sensation. I don't know what it is because of the pathways. It was only then I figured the brain injury had more of an impact than the rest of my body been broke up but if I 
to this day, if I have a glass of orange, I have to be prepared that once the gas is released in my stomach, I have no balance. So I wouldn't drink a glass of orange before I drive my car. Or if I was going for dinner and I was going to have dinner with my kids, I wouldn't have orange during my dinner and drive home because I'd lose my balance. So I eliminate anything fizzy from my diet. You know, I don't have anything, God forbid, that's nice. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, <laughs> so I suppose you learn as you're going along. I had to learn when I was hungry. Um, I didn't know the feeling of being hungry. I didn't know when I had to go to the bathroom. Everything had to be written down. I'd write it down every day. This sensation is you need to go to the toilet. This sensation is you've wind. You know, this sensation is your throat. Or uh, so that's how I learned everything again. And to this day, sounds I'm like still you're learning. starting from you're just starting from the beginning. So everything you knew prior, everything, I didn't know. everything yeah. that everyone takes for granted, we'll say. Um, and also the independence of able to do your old stuff, to be always be able to be there for your kids. All of these things just in one fell swoop was just taken away. And then either to give up or not give up, you chose not to give up. And then it's a slow fight back to get to somewhere back to normality, which you're still doing as we speak. But sounds like you're a very different person now. Like I know that when you look in the mirror and you don't recognize yourself, that yeah. nothing is ever the same, ever the same after that again. And I don't know how to um, write a paragraph, we'll say, to explain to somebody else what that feels like afterwards. And I've never heard anybody describe it properly yet, but um, not that I'm glad anything happened to you, but it's nice to hear somebody else saying that. You're the only other person I've ever heard saying that. So we'll be besties for life now over that. Yeah. Um, so you say about, okay, so you, you've, you've lost Maeve, you're trying to get her back, you're trying to come to some some sort of normality. Um, things will never be the same again in terms of the person you were before and after. Um, that doesn't mean to say that you're not better now. You probably are. You probably appreciate stuff more. I don't I'm know. but I'd be tenacious by nature and I'm very resilient. Um, bullheaded, maybe, if you want to quote it down, I suppose the part, the hardest, losing myself was one thing, but hearing my kids say, we miss mommy. Mm -hmm. And every parent, all they want to do is love their kids and give them every bit of love and affection and nourishment. But I didn't know how because, because the pathways had crossed in the brain, my emotions where I needed to feel emotion would be flat and still is. Sometimes it's flat. And then I'd often go to bed at night and I'd be just lying there and there'd be tears coming down my face. And I was going, am I crying? What's bothering me? And the kids would say, go back over your day and see what happened. And I'd go back over and there might be something in the day that might have bothered me emotionally that I didn't identify with. And once I identify with it, then I'm fine. But um, a lot of it would be the emotional side of things. Before the crash, I was a trust. Tommy Tiernan would say a fucking truckload of emotion. Hoo-hoo, right? Where, you know, I'd feel sad for people and I'd have all these emotions and I'd hurt and I'd... And then all that was gone. And I was going, Jesus, Mev. Where's your empathy? Where's your compassion? I'd still have it, but I'd show it completely differently than what I would beforehand. You know, my uh, I'd be my vision wasn't right. As your last guest, Stephen, um, your the brightness, lights in different places is affected. My visual, my hearing, um. I remember being in bed one night here and I could hear this whistle and I kept saying, do none of you hear that? It's driving me insane. I ended up, it took me a couple of hours, but I found it. So I sleep at the front of the house. There was a tiny hole in at the back of, underneath the sink and it was windy. Now, I mean, that went through my ear. Nobody else could hear it, but I could hear it way up the other end of the house. It's like you have superpowers. I wouldn't even say it. It's just my hearing. But it took me a long time because I remember eight or nine months after the crash, 
and it was coming up to Christmas and the kids were saying, Mom, can we go for dinner and we'll go into El Coliseo? And in my head, I want to go with them. I want to do what I did before with my kids. And I'm going, oh, geez, so many steps is there up there? How am I going to get up the steps without pain? What if I lose my balance? But I didn't want to tell them what was bothering me. And I remember going up the stairs thinking, great, I made it up the stairs and I sit down and shut your mouth. This was in my head. And we'd all ordered and I'm sitting there. And as I'm sitting there, I'm conscious of the knives and forks banging. I'm going, oh, Jesus Christ, this is terrible. And yet I still didn't want to say it to them because I didn't want to have to leave. And then it started to get busier and busier. And once there was a crowd of people in eating and the forks and knives were banging, the only way I can describe it is, do you remember years ago when RT would turn off and the screen would go all fuzzy? Yeah. Everything went fuzzy. And I just held on to the table and I thought, I'm going to faint. Um, and I just said to the kids, are you finished? Or will we go now? And they were saying, do you really want to go? And I, yeah, I have to go down the stairs. But won't you stand beside me? I held it together until I got outside. And I, I remember sitting down thinking, am I going to die? Like, or is this what just happened to me? And it was only then that I realized, God, this brain injury has affected me more than I cared to even look into it. I was so busy trying to fix everything around me that I forgot about myself and what I was able to do. So when I figured out that that was from the brain injury, I thought, okay, the only way to fix this is to train my brain. So I went into research. How do I train my brain? So um, I ended up looking up Kangen water that I would alkalize my body because I know the brain needs, the brain is made up of water, a lot of it, so it just needs water. So I thought, how do I do this? Alkalize my body, take away all the acid that was causing me to collapse and feel faint. You know, try and alkaline my body to a healthy state, not to an unhealthy state. So I bought a Kangen water machine and the guy that I bought it from had a brain injury and he was doing great. And I was saying, what did you do? That's how we got talking. So it ended up, I'd done research on a Dr. Corinne Allen in America who was big into alkaline water and how the brain works and how to get the brain back working, you know, the two sides to correlate together, you know, and how to get the body to work with the brain. So that's what I set out to do. I went in, I researched Dr. Corinne Allen, I alkaline my body, and I started doing my own neurological checks daily, which I still do, uh, to get the brain to work as much as it can and get the pathways. You have to keep doing that every single day. I do, yeah. Um, so, but you know the alternative, so, you know, it's... Um, yeah, like, I'm I trying do. to get how you feel when you come out at a restaurant, and you, like, it was like... Um, must have almost thought like, well, like I just can't leave the house anymore because everything, the noises, the distractions, everything is just too much. Um, but I associated my bedroom with being sick. So okay. I didn't like being there either. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's funny how you associate different things. Like people associate songs with a particular moment that will bring an emotion. I had to really... I just got up one day and I said, okay, you are in the greatest battle you're ever going to be in. And it's with your mind. Yeah. Right. And I knew it was with my mind. I had to, it had become my greatest opponent, which I never, you know, before the crash, it wasn't something that I ever, I was a very positive person. Yeah. I did look into alternative remedies. I was holistic. I was very spiritual before the crash, but this was a complete U-turn. I felt like somebody had taken me, taken out Maeve and put in somebody else. My shell, yeah, my shell was the same. I'd look in the mirror and I'd see my eyes, as you said, but everything else was different. I felt that I was abducted and somebody else was put in instead. Yeah. That's what it felt like. That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? It's just, it's Absolutely. the most surreal thing you'll ever think. You, you, yeah. you can hardly believe it like. 
Yeah. You literally so- hardly believe that this is happening. You think that if I keep looking, I'll start to emerge and see myself again. And you're going, no, this is not changing. If anything is getting worse, the longer I look. So my mind was a battlefield mm. and I was in the middle and it was my greatest opponent. I just got up one day and I said, okay, you've two choices here. You can give up, lie down and die under this, or you can get up and you can change your thoughts. When you're going through hell, keep going. That's the phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I did that. And so, so that was the crash. That's what happened. You were very, very injured. You've done. Like even to see you here sitting down, chatting away and talking about it. And, you know, like I'm sure maybe three years ago, you couldn't have talked about it the way you're talking about it now. But, you know, people listening to this probably won't even appreciate the progress you've went through, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally to be able to sit down and talk about it with such strength and so matter of factly. And I have no doubt, incidentally, um, that there's people that's listening to this who perhaps have never been in a car crash, but have felt like they lost themselves also. Um, and again, it's not that it's nice to see you saying it, but it's it's, it's always nice to hear other people from all walks of life and hear that they're feeling the same things that you're feeling as well. Um, something that we have to touch on this is that, um, so can you talk to us about um, what you're trying to do with the courts and get the government to do and um, where it's at now and what's the obstacles? And I appreciate you talking me over the phone the other day that COVID stopped an awful lot of stuff, but can you just walk us through that um well, i was in a head-on collision my collision I, I, the guy that i was in the crash with suffered with severe unresolved mental health illness and through no fault of his own um when somebody suffers with severe psychotic episodes or psychosis you know and it's to an extreme they don't know what they're doing you know, and the guy that drove into me that night, I believe he had no idea what he was doing. However, in saying that, I believe that if he had got the help that he truly sought, and he did, believe me, I sat at that inquest, I felt more hurt for that man than I did for myself. You know, I realized that I wasn't really the victim, he was a victim, you know. And I thought there should be some kind of a law brought in to protect those with unresolved mental health illness as severe as what his was. That if there was, you know, some law into the supervision of those with psychotic episodes when they're in a severe state, that he would still be here today. And I would not have the injuries that I have. And my children would not have had to endure what they endured for the past six years. And, and just to be very, very clear on this, um, you, what you're saying is, is that you're not saying people who are suffering from chronic or severe mental health issues shouldn't be allowed to drive. You've actually never said that those words no, at all. What you're not. saying is that people who, that there should be a system in place. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. If you suffer from mental illness and you're a member of the permanent defense forces, they don't let you carry a gun, not because they think you'll shoot somebody. It's just a preventative measure for a period of time. Yes. But you can get in a vehicle and drive home. Yes. Now, when people are worse and worse and going to states and fits of psychosis, they, they, as you said, which you're right, by the way, they don't know what they're doing. So they need to be helped and they need to be assessed and make sure nothing got to do with crashing into you. They could crash a car themselves or drive into the yeah. Shannon or anything at all. Um. And I think that it's a very good thing that you're asking them to do. Um, but I, I just want to, because you have been misquoted in the past by saying yeah. that you, you know, you just like. Uh, that I'm targeting people with mental health. Yeah, which There's is one. nonsense because I read the article and that's not what you're doing. You're doing the opposite to that. You're asking for help. You're asking for assessment. Um, There's not and, one person on this planet who doesn't suffer with mental health. If we have a good day, it's good mental health. And if we have a bad day, it's just a bad mental health day, right? There's none of us. Mental health falls under a very big umbrella. There's not one of us that is exempt from standing under it at some stage in our life, right? So if that was the case, there'd be none of us driving. Do you know what I mean? It's not that. When you have someone like the gentleman that drove into me, 
who suffered so bad with mental health issues. The supervision, there was nothing in place to protect him from himself, never mind us. But when you get to that stage, there should be something to protect the individual. 100%. 100%. Would you give a child a gun and tell them to go out and play in the garden? No, you wouldn't. And you certainly wouldn't give somebody who had chronic mental health illness the keys of a car and say, here, take yourself, go for a drive, you'll be fine. So where are you with this now? Um, where, where does it land today? Like, so where are we now, as in getting this passed as something that's going to happen? I to uh, Traffic Medicine Ireland. I have spoke to, to be fair to the Irish Examiner, they have followed my case from the get-go. Um, they've given it a lot of media coverage. So has the Independent and the Sunday World. I'm not asking anything that's not workable, you know, even you take recently, there was a complete family wiped out on the Banislaw Road, wiped out. Even if there was a barrier, when you go down the wrong way on the slip road, even if there was something to come up off the road to burst the tires, that might prevent that type of carnage. If they're not going to willingly do something to help the individual, well, do something. Do you know what I mean? These crashes should not be happening. They just should not. Now, I know you can't prevent them completely. If somebody wants to get a car, they'll get a car. But there should be at least some kind of provision in place that might limit it, the amount of times that it happens. Do you know, the the jury recommended um, at the inquest that there should be a major overhaul into the supervision of those with severe mental illness. That would prevent somebody, you know, taking their life or taking somebody else's or both. You know, I'm lucky to be here today. My kids are lucky, but we have to pay a price for that night. And there is people who are trying to get help, who are suffering from mental health, who proclaim to, uh, a specialist that I feel like I'm suicidal and they're just sent home. So even, you know, the whole system doesn't seem to be working too well. Um, why, why is it? So what you're asking for essentially is, or, or what is, is, is that if somebody is suffering from mental health and they're getting help and they're getting to be seen about it and they suffer bouts of psychosis that maybe periodically over the year, not just alone, but as part of their help and as part of their recovery, that are just assessed to make sure that it's safe for them to drive behind a lump of steel, is basically what you're saying. I, okay. I can't see any problem with that at all. And I'm actually surprised that it doesn't happen already. It was from talking to you that I realised that that wasn't a thing. But you look, know? I can go up the road and I can have a pint of Guinness. And the guards have to do their job. And without them, we'd be in big trouble. Without the guards that night, stopping the traffic and doing whatever else they had to do and... Uh, even the night of my crash, you appreciate the guards, you appreciate the ambulance service, you appreciate the fire and rescue services. Do you know what I mean? Without all these people, I would not be here today. Do you know what I mean? There's so much more that people don't look at. I remember I'd meet an ambulance on the road before the crash and I'd say, oh Jesus, God love whoever they're gone for. Now I don't, I just say, God look after the men that's in that ambulance because the carnage they see on the roads, the carnage the guards see and the fire service when they're cutting people from wrecks, it's not good. Their mental health is affected. So it's like a ricochet. You know, it goes around in a circle. I mean, I know that the man who hit me is deceased, Lord to mercy, and I hope he's at rest. But then my home, had mental health problems because of that night. Do you know what I'm saying? My kids it ripples were in the ocean. One thing goes wrong and it ripples out and affects all these other different Absolutely. services, people, family, friends, everybody. Everybody. It affects everyone. So not just the two people, not just me and the other man involved. My whole family have been affected by it. Mm. Everything gets affected. You know, I have a path to my doctor. 
he has to listen to me and that's just it has a ripple effect he has to listen to me i'm sure he doesn't mind no he doesn't but he's been fantastic but it, it's very difficult i i'd often ring him and say i don't feel right what what's wrong no idea how are you feeling no idea but i just know i'm not right and it's a come on into me now there could be something and it might be nothing but I can't identify. I remember going back here in the middle of the pandemic at the first year. I was here for a full week. I didn't feel right. But I wasn't sick, but I didn't feel okay. And my neck didn't feel right. And I kept saying, does any see anything in my neck? And they were going, no, ma, you're fine, you're fine. And the week had passed and I said, like this, I ring my doc. So I rang my doc. And the doctor was on duty new and he says, Maeve, look, because I know you, because I, will you come down till I have a look? Down to my doc and he says, have you your phone with you? And I said, I do. He says, here, give it to me till I take a picture and I show you your throat. I had an abscess block on one side of my throat that was huge. Now I had no pain, right? Because my pain pathways had crossed, but I had a sensation. And all I could say is I have a sensation. It just doesn't feel right. Like no temperature or nothing. So my body is is different. Before this, I'd say, well, I have a sore throat. I think I've tonsillitis or I've whatever, because you spent 45 years getting to know your body and all of a sudden you haven't a clue who you are. And you've been told, don't give yourself anything that you wouldn't give to a five-year-old because, you know, on the sixth anniversary of your crash, you're now a six-year-old. You know, so... All I can take is Panadol. That's it. Nothing else. So your so, journey essentially is still, it's not that this happened and you're finished and you're out of it and you're telling us a story. You're still bang in the middle of it, but you're still going and still, if you like, learning new stuff all of the time. And it's, yeah. um, <clears throat> it might be something that you're learning for the rest of your life, different things that you're finding out about yourself and your, the new you. But what I, what, what I will say is that like, just remember this, or if, if no one has told you before, um, I know this from doing the podcast myself because I get messages all of the time, is that like there's people that you don't know that will be reading your stuff that knows about what happened to you. There will be people yeah. that um, you've never met before in your life that might see you on here that are going through stuff as well. And <clears throat> the way you're handling, and I'm not saying you're handling it all the time with grace, but the way you can come on and speak about it, the way you're speaking about it now, be very matter-of-factly about it, be able to talk about it with emotion as well, and quite frankly, be be brutally honest. I think it's very inspiring for others to hear the way you're talking about it. Um, obviously, I prefer if it never happened to you, but it did, and there was loads of ways that it could have went, and it seems like you're doing everything you possibly can. Is that looks are very deceiving. Yeah. Right, and we do as humans, we take it for granted. Like... There's another thing that sticks in my mind. Um, a few months after the crash, I used to love to get my nails done. Hence. Um, and I'd always have kept myself well. And I remember saying, my mother was saying, you can't get your nails done. And I'd say, no, I'm, I don't care who's bringing me in the wheelchair. Just wheel me in, leave me there for the hour and I get my hair. I, it was the only thing that I wanted to keep was that to be able to look okay. On the outside. On the outside. Mm -hmm. That when I did look in the mirror, that I said, well, you look okay. You know, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And I would, I had these affirmations that I would say every morning, like, death and life is in the power of your tongue. What you speak over yourself, so you'll be. So I get up in the morning, I'd say, you look great. You know, you got this. And I would say to my body, now you're going to do as I tell you to do, right? You're not going to lie down. You're getting up and you're out the door. I didn't care if it took me a half an hour to get out to the driveway. I do it. But for somebody on the outside looking in, you look normal. You know, even my car, um, I crashed in a Volvo. I went back to driving a Volvo. Um, I would drive a Bigfoot a low loader if I got away with it, to stay high up off the road. Um, I went back to Volvo because it played a huge part in saving my life as well. How long after the crash did you get back into a car to drive? 
uh, number one and number two, was it a natural thing or was it a gradual thing to get back driving? Or is that even a fair question? I could be shot for saying this by the guards. But anyway, I remember going out to Mostan to the medical centre and my father took me out of the car into my wheelchair and brought me into the doctor for a painkiller for an injection. I came out and I said to my dad, I'm driving to where the crash happened. You can either come with me or get a taxi home, take your pick. And he went, oh, the curse of God, Maeve, <laughs> never forget it. You can't drive. You just can't. I said, I am. I'm driving. So he lifted me into the seat. Wheelchair went into the boot. The car was automatic because I had gotten automatic and I drove to where the crash happened. I stopped. I cursed. I swore. String of curses came out. I had it done. And I said to my father, I said, now you can bring me home. That was brave to do that, but it was absolutely... If essential. I hadn't have done it, I probably wouldn't have got in behind the wheel. But I'm back driving. Um, I love driving. I always did. And when my kids were younger, if they couldn't sleep at night, I'd put them into the car and I'd drive to the airport. By the time I get there, they'd be fast asleep, as there were kids that didn't sleep. And I always loved driving. You know, taking that. It's very therapeutic, I find. Long drives, yeah. particularly. I love it. But I have a disability badge on my car. So you can imagine I look well, I have a nice car, and I pull into a disability spot. I have got a lot of stick over that. You know, but there's days if it's raining, you know, when the weather changes, I'd be very sensitive to weather change. You know, I'd have balance issues with when the clouds are out and I'd have body pain but look I overcome it but it's great to be able to pull in close to somewhere you know, that's what the disability spots are for I mean you don't have to get out of the car with 16 arms and 16 legs you can still be a normal exactly. person who you know looks after themselves but that, that's exactly what they're for there should, there should be no issue with that whatsoever and it should be even less of an issue what other people think who cares and not all disabilities are visible, you see. 100%. About it. People think per you should. Particularly the brain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But you learn, I have learned a lot about myself. I know my limits. Um, I do a lot of training of the brain every day. I take sulforaphane, a broccoli sprout, twice a day, um, which is great. Um, Sulforaphane is a compound that's found in broccoli sprout or in broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower and all of that. Um, and it's a compound, it, I don't want to get really scientific, but it turns on the NRF2 pathway of the brain, which is for inflammation. So the more of it you can take, it reduces inflammation. So I take that twice a day um, from broccoli sprouts. I drink three liters of alkaline water a day. I take porridge twice a day. I have a good main dinner with lots of veg. Um, I stopped eating chocolate completely a couple of months back because of everybody. We need acid in our body. It breaks down, you know, in our tummies or whatever. But the more acid that I have, it affects my balance. And it's normal. Like when you eat, you'll get gases. People bet, but when I get gases to an excess, I'll fall over. Do you know, so I try to limit that as much as I can, that it doesn't affect my balance. So I cut out anything that's God forbid nice. <laughs> yeah, I know some people, incidentally, that um, if they would collapse or faint when they eat chocolate, they just eat four or five bars of chocolate while whilst lying in bed, you know, and they take the hit of. Uh, collapsing but no look in your situation you've lost the person that you were you have to start fresh again and it's not easy and you're doing it and you're taking out all the stuff you've decided that this is where I want to do or this is where I want to go this is what I want to be and I'm saying no to everything that isn't that and that's not easy to do that's hard to do um it's very very hard to do that and to constantly do it all of the time but you're doing it 
I've learned, I have learned in six years, I've learned so much about the body and how it works. Um, obviously, I suppose because of the brain injury and the break in the neck, I had a lot of dysfunction of the nervous system, the vagus nerve that controls a lot, of, uh, controls the whole body. And I suppose when I went in and studied, and I have studied the body in-depthly every day for six years. So I decided this year that I'd do um, the community first responder course or first aid responder course so that um, if anyone has ever been bothered that I will be able to give back something. Um, I got involved with the Atlone Emergency Defibrillator Group, which is a great it's just such a fantastic idea. It's unbelievable. And a bull of bus to everyone that's involved in that. That's absolutely fantastic. You know, it, to be able to time, I've learned that time is essence. It's essence from the time something happens to somebody that the sooner they have treatment, the better chance they have with defibrillator. It doesn't matter whether it's a burn or whatever it is, because you don't need to have a car crash or a major trauma to suffer with post-traumatic stress. You can get that from falling off a bike. Do you know what I mean? You can get a brain injury from falling off your curb onto the road. You don't have to have a severe trauma to be affected and lose your identity. You know, and I know what it's like to be the other side of that and it's not nice. And if I can help just one person in this lifetime to overcome in some way, something similar to what I've went through, well, I'll be happy. You know. Well, we're not. Uh, we're not going to say anything better than that in this podcast. Um, look, I'm going to leave it there and say thanks for coming on. Um, I hope that's helped some people. I will say that Maeve's um, Facebook page and all that is in the description, so go and have a follow over. Um, her book will be up later in the year. I won't put a time scale on it, putting her under pressure, but um, you can go and check that out. And I just say, look, thank you very much for coming on. It's much appreciated and Thanks all the best. Bye-bye. Thank you.